Philippians chapter 1 verses 19 through 21 is our text this morning says this for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Christ Jesus according to my earnest expectations and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will now even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You may be seated. Father, we thank you that you are a God of promises. Lord, we just sang a song that is a reminder that you have promised to regather your people, Israel, Lord. And much of the scripture reminds us of that. But yet to this day, they remain in turmoil, they remain in rebellion and under your discipline, Lord. But there will be a day they will look on the one whom they have pierced, the Bible says. And they will put their faith in Jesus just as we have the church. And you will unite these two groups of people for eternity, Lord. And so, Father, we pray for your son to return. We, knew he, we know he returned and came to earth that first time in the manger, Lord. God was in the manger. And now, Lord, we long for his second coming, for him to come and gather his children to himself. And, Lord, we, we pray for that day. But while we wait, may we be diligent about spreading the gospel. Those are our marching orders, Lord, to be part of the kingdom-building process. So, Lord, help us in that endeavor, Lord. May even today, as we listen to your word, the truth of God given to us, Lord, that it would strengthen us for that task. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are marching our way through the book of Philippians. I'm enjoying it intensely. I think it's probably been over 20 years since I preached through the book of Philippians, and I'm learning so much and enjoying it. Thank you for allowing me to study and to uh, prepare for this. Um, these are great words. Last week, we really keyed on the gospel in circumstances, understanding that we all have difficult circumstances. Paul had a very difficult circumstance, and yet he was concerned with the gospel. And we're learning, we're trying to do that as a people, right? As individuals, learning to love Jesus, learning to hold to the gospel when it's difficult. And we realize, we, we talked about this last week, Paul had wanted to come to Rome. And, his, and when he wrote to the Romans a few years before this, he longed to be with them. But when he got there, he came in chains, was totally different than what he expected. But yet he says, my circumstances will turn out for the advancement of the gospel. He received what God gave, and he believed in it. I want to take you to a passage of scripture, just a way of introduction that I didn't get to last week that I really wanted to get to this from time as we launch into this next section here. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to show you a passage in here that really sums up a lot of what Paul is going through and why he is going through it. He, he could have got out of some of the imprisonment, but he appealed to Caesar, and that led him all the way to Rome and put him in front of all the kings and princesses and put him in a very difficult position. But Paul understood there was a reason God was doing that. He wanted the gospel to go all the way forth to the king of Rome, and that was the goal because he knew he would save people. Paul says to Timothy in his, of course, his last inspired book, 
um, that he wrote before his death to to Timothy. He said this in verse eight. He said, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Here's our Christmas part. Descendant of David. That's the promise. There's a Messiah going to come. He is the Messiah. So Paul says, don't forget Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead. He's the Messiah, descendant of David, according to my gospel. So he sets the record again who Jesus is. Now, this is what he says, what he, why he loves the Lord so much and why he's involved in all this. Verse 9, for which I suffered hardship. Now, for which I, the, the, the subject of that is Jesus. So I, I suffer for Jesus' hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. Paul went to prison as someone who was arrested for doing something wrong when he did nothing wrong. So he says, I'm doing this. I suffer for Jesus, this hardship, this imprisonment as a criminal. Now notice this, and I love this little phrase, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Oh, don't you like that? You can't stop the word of God. Oh, you studied a little bit of church history. You realize they've tried. They've burned them. They've burned the Bible. They have tried to wipe it out. In many places still today, it's illegal to have a copy of it. But you can't stop it. And Paul knew that the word of God cannot be changed. He goes, you can chain me. You can keep me here and chain me. You can cut my head off, which they did later. Nero, Nero killed um, right after, probably three, four to six months after he wrote this letter. Nero killed Paul. But he says, you can't chain and you can't kill the word of God. Now, one more verse here. Look at this next verse for the reason why he goes through suffering. And this is good for us. You and I may not go to prison, but we may have to go through other things. We may suffer through difficult things. But Paul says, while you suffer, remember why you're suffering. Look at this verse. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures, he says this. For this reason I endured all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Who? Paul says, God, I don't know how your electoral love works completely, but you seem to know who you, who's are yours. Paul wrote to us in, in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that God chose us from the foundations of the world. <coughs> so he, he understands that. So he understands there's an electoral love of God. But notice what he says. While, while he endures these things for the sake of those who are cho- chosen, so that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. Now think about that. God may ask you to go through something difficult so that he would collect those he's chosen through it. Isn't that amazing? You go, Lord, I didn't want this illness or I didn't want this difficulty in my life or whatever it may be that God has asked you to go through, but God may be asking you to go through it. Paul believes that because he's going through this trial that God is going to collect people, draw people to himself through that process. So he willingly says, put me in chains. You can't chain the word of God, but I know, I know, God, you're going to draw people to yourself. See, our tendency, and I'll speak personally, and then maybe you fit into this, or maybe you don't. When trials come my way, I resist them at times. Oh, Lord, why me? Why now? (laughs) Anybody ever said that? I don't need this right now, Lord. Well, maybe you do. Maybe it's exactly what God has to save that neighbor of yours, that wayward child, that coworker that you've been witnessing to. Maybe they watch you go through something 
This morning, Brad and I were talking for church, and he said, a coworker came up and said, out of the blue, he says, are you a Christian? And I said, Brad, why do you say that? He goes, I don't know. He said he's seen something different in me. Isn't that amazing? He just started the job not too long ago, right, Brad? And, and yet, this, this man recognized something in him, and, and see, God does that, and who knows where this will lead? See, we go through different things, change of jobs, difficulties that are in our life for a reason. And Paul says, look, I'm, I'm imprisoned as a criminal. The word of God can't be prisoned. But I know that God is putting me through this because he's drawing people to himself. Boy, there's an eternal, eternal perspective of trials. Is that correct? See, it's, it's looking at what God has put into our lives, realizing that there's a grander design there's something more. It isn't just, well, we go around the ball for a little while, then we die. Right? It's a very worldly way people think. But not Christians. Well, we go around the ball, and it's difficult at times, right? Anybody got just a piece of cake life? Everything's easy. No hands. Hmm. I'm, you know, I would like that. <laughs> you know, fleshly thinking. But I got four boys, and I have a marriage. Always needs working on, right? I need to love my wife, and, and I need to raise children and point them towards Christ. I need to live in this world and be a neighbor and share Christ and, and then deal with the, the aging body that isn't 20 any longer, right? There's all kinds of issues that we go through, and, and yet God divinely works through each and every one of those situations to bring glory to himself. Boy, if we could just get that down, I think we would be happier. We would have joy in our life when we didn't think we'd have it. Well, I want to give you five areas of, of joy, both in life and death today, that I see Paul doing here as you turn back to our text in First Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Look at verse 19, just the start of it. And here I kind of label this the joy of the sovereign plan of God. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now remember, he's in prison. He's in house arrest. We, we saw last week that people are, the, um, people are coming to know Christ in the Praetorian Guard in the household of Caesar. There's people out there preaching Christ with good motives, and there's people out there preaching Christ with bad motives. They're trying to hurt Paul. They're trying to destroy his ministry, take away from him while he's captive. But Paul says, look, hey, whether they're, they're proclaiming Christ with good motives or bad motives, I'm so glad that they're proclaiming Christ. What a great, pure heart of seeing the gospel go forth. And he says, look, I will rejoice. Isn't it amazing? He says, I rejoice present tense in the end of verse 18. Then he says, I will rejoice future tense. I, I love it. Someone said that to me this week. They said they were amazed when, when we talked about that last week because Paul set himself up to say, yes, I will rejoice. He didn't say, I'll rejoice well if this all turns out good. He already declared to God, I will rejoice. No matter what, I'll rejoice. And I think you and I need to work on that. Lord, we're going to rejoice in you despite the outcome. But here Paul says in verse 19 that he says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Now the key is, you, I think when you first read that, you go, oh, Paul knows he's going to get out of prison. No, you look down at the end of verse 20 and he says, whether by life or death. Oh, so his deliverance view is a little different than our deliverance view. Oh, Lord, you're going to give me a new job. 
No, I might kill you in the one you're in. <laughs> but I'm going to deliver you from that job. May happen. See, see, Paul has this unique eternal view of all things, whether in the flesh or in death. He has this view. So he says, look, I know these things will turn out. He uses a, a Greek word oida here. And he doesn't use gnoskis, which is a different word of knowledge and understanding. He uses this word oida that means I know with, with certainty. I am absolutely convinced that my suffering, both from these unbelievers and from these believers, are going to turn out from my deliverance. Which, uh, what something amazed me today, I didn't realize this, but he quotes actually Job here. I, I never caught that before. He's actually quoting out of the Septuagint. I want to show you the passage he's quoting. Go to Job chapter 13. It's fascinating that he would do this. I mean, think about Job's life, right? Hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, you got a hedge around him. I can't get near him. Well, I'm going to drop that hedge. God lets Satan destroy his family, his health, and all of his wealth in a matter of a couple of days. Wiped everything out. Can you imagine that? Here comes Job's three friends. I use the term friend lightly. They think that Job has sinned and God is punishing him. That's how, their, that's how their counsel is coming to our friend Job. They said, you have sinned and now God is disciplining you. They don't actually know what God's doing. We need to be very careful when we see somebody go through trials that we don't run and say, boy, what did they do wrong? And God's getting them for it. God's doing an amazing work here in Job's life. Now look, at me, look with me at chapter 13, verse 15. Can you say these words? I think there's days I can and, and days I can't. I'll be honest with you. Verse 15. Though he, God, slay me, I will hope in him. Oh. Everybody a little shaken with that passage? I mean, we don't use the word slay very well in our society here. Job uses it. Though you slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my way before him. Lord, I love you. I'm, I want to follow you. I have, I have tried to follow you. I've tried to raise my children. Doubtlessly, Job said those things. We can see them in here. But notice verse 16. This is this phrase. It's right out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul's quoting. He says, this also will be my salvation. There's our words. They're word for word out of the Greek Septuagint that Paul's using in Philippians 1. This also will be my deliverance. Uh, soteriologia, soteria soteria is, the, is the Greek word. means deliver, sal, save. This will be, I will be delivered from this, Job says. For a godless man may not come before his presence. What an amazing context this is in. And as you turn back to our text in, first, in Philippians chapter 1, you begin to realize Paul's saying very much the same thing. God has, by his sovereign plan, placed me in arrest for the furtherance of the gospel. But I know, I know he has not forgotten me. I know he will deliver me. I put my faith in a God who loves me extremely different than I understand love. 
Now think about this. A few years later, I mean a few years earlier, Paul wrote to the Roman church. He said, and we know that God causes all things to work together. We know this verse, Romans 8, 28. Uh, for the good of, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse. We sing it. It's on refrigerators. It's all over. We know and believe that God works all things together, right? He's saying the exact same thing about himself in this verse. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. See, not only does Paul tell people to believe that, he says it of himself. Paul had joy in God's sovereign plan because he knew the love of God. And I think that's the issue with Christians. We don't, we don't always understand the love of God. We, we say, well, God loves me the way my spouse loves me. Well, thank God that's not true. Because we go like this with our love with each other, don't we? It's all based on performance sometimes. Did, honey, did you get the trash out? Well, no, I didn't. What have you been doing? Watching football? <laughs> you know, there's, there's this give and take. We, we struggle with each other at times. And we think maybe God loves us that way, but he doesn't. See, I think when we, have to, when we go through discipline, when we go through trials, when we go through all kinds of things that come, we have to be like Paul. Paul believed that he, God was not punishing him. God was not abandoning him at all. He realized that God was actually using him for a greater purpose than he could actually even see. And he did this because he knew the love of God. He understood the sovereign love of God. Let me just read you some verses. You can jot some of these down. You'll probably know some of them. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. Scott will disappoint. Friends will disappoint one another every once in a while. Your marriage will be disappointing once in a while. God will never disappoint. He, he doesn't miss the mark. His love is, is the standard of what we judge love by. It, it doesn't go like this. It is the standard of love. It's always when we're in sin, he still loves us the same. When you're in rebellion to what God has asked you to do, if you're a true believer, his love does not wane for you. In fact, he will discipline you in his love the Bible says. Romans 8, 38 and 39, listen to this, for I am convinced, Paul writing this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, right now, and things in the future, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing, he just runs out of examples, so he just says everything else, will be able to separate us from the what? Love of God. Are you convinced of that this morning? You better be because you're heading for a trial. Someone's gonna get sick in your family. Odds are, right? We live in a fallen world. Our bodies are deteriorating. We live in a world that is morally changing extremely rapidly right now. Do you know he loves you? See, Paul held on to this going through trials. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Oh, I love that verse. May the Lord, may, may Jesus himself direct 
you to the love of God. I've heard people pray this prayer. Lord, I need your love right now. And I realize that prayer. He, they already have it, but I know what they're asking for. I know what's, what's pulling on their heart in that deep and dark and hurtful time that they may be going through. They need to sense that love. And Paul says, look, I'm praying for you that the Lord will direct your hearts right into the love of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 11, as he closes out the second letter to the Corinthian church, he says this, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you. Oh, isn't that beautiful? You know, who gets to hear that stuff? Only the church. The true church of Jesus Christ get to hear those things. The Bible says he loves the world, he loves his creation, Right, We understand that he has, a, he has a love for all things he created. But the Bible is extremely clear that he has a unique and eternal and everlasting love for his children. And he did not save you to drown you. Do you understand that? He's taking you through difficulties to bring you into a closer relationship with him, to cause you to trust him in a way that you have not, so that the gospel will go forth in your life and that maybe that person you're going through the trial with or that neighbor who's watching. It's an amazing what God does. See, we lose, jo- we lose joy because we underestimate the love of God. Why are you doing this to me, God? Oh, instead we say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you love me. See, can you say that? See, that's, that's different. I don't always know what the Lord's doing. I told someone this week, I said, providence is an amazing thing. We only stand providence once it goes by. Oh, that's what you were doing, God. Here, I was over here thinking you were, oh yeah, that's what you were doing. But see, when we start to say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, that's an honest confession to God. I don't understand why you've asked me to go through this, but here's what I do know, God. You love me. And I need that. Cause me to lay in your arms and trust you through this. Because if not, God, I'm going to try to take this in my own hands and I'm going to be nervous. I'm going to be mean to everybody around me and just a mess. I need to know you love me. Cause me to know that. Two, joy in gospel-filled prayers of the saints. There's joy in the gospel-filled prayers of the saints. Notice he says in verse 19, for I know that this will turn out Lead, lead to my deliverance is the idea of the Greek there, through your prayers. Now, again, he does not use uh, prosukamai here for a general word for a prayer. He uses um, the other word, uh, denes, to teach us that this is prayers of supplication. So Paul says, I know that you're praying specifically for me. You're, you're, you're praying, you're bringing these petitions before the Lord. He's telling the Philippi church, I know you're praying and you're part of God's plan. You're praying and your, your prayer life will be filled with joy if you pray in line with the Lord's will. So maybe you do need a new job, but you probably should pray this way. Lord, I think this, but I want your will be done, not mine. See, that's where we start finding joy, when we start saying, Lord, I know what I think could be very different than what you think. So, Lord, I ask that you would take my thinking and line it up with your thinking. I promise you, you'll have joy if you do that. 
That's, that's what he wants. That's what Jesus did. In the garden, right before he dies for us, what does he say? Not my will be done, but yours. And Paul's saying the similar thing. I need, I need to, through your prayers, I need to trust you. These are gospel-filled prayers. Look how often the gospel is used just in the last few verses. Look at verse 12. And I think there's, there's a difference between a prayer life and a gospel-filled prayer life. I think that's what Paul's after in this. Look at verse 12. Into 12, he says, for the greater progress of the gospel. Verse 13, for the cause of Christ. Verse 14, that to speak the word of God without fear. That's the gospel going forth through the word of God. That's what these men are doing now. They're emboldened to do this. Verse 15, preaching Christ. That's the gospel. Verse 16, the defense of the gospel. The, the, we get the word for apologetics from this word, that we defend the gospel here. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ, even out of self-ambition, but Christ is being preached. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. So he's not saying that prayer life should be devoid of the gospel. In fact, our prayer life should be filled with the gospel. It should be filled with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, what does that look like? Well, I think our prayers need to start off often like this. Heavenly Father, I thank you for saving me. I didn't deserve it. But you, Heavenly Father, sent your son and he hung on a cross for me and he forgave all of my sins and I want to praise you for that this morning. That's gospel-filled prayer. Lord, I'm going through a trial. By your sovereign plan, you have given me X, Y, Z, whatever that may be. How, Lord, can I use this to spread your fame, your glory? See, gospel prayers. And, and Paul knew that the church in Philippi were praying for him. He wanted to direct them and say, pray for me of the gospel. Pray that the gospel goes forward. Pray for the advancement of the gospel. So when we pray for those ones who call us, and they say, hey, will you pray for me? We have a prayer chain in this church. It goes around, and we see things that people are praying for, and we, we, we stand with them and pray with them through those difficulties as they go. But we, particularly our staff and elders, we never not pray gospel-wise for you. Oh, Lord, give them comfort, give them mercy as they go through this, but help them see the glory of Christ as they go through this difficulty. That's how we pray for you. We don't want you to go through some trial and not love Jesus more after you went through it. What's the purpose? Well, I just guess God ran me through the ringer for nothing. No, no. God took me through some tough times, but boy, did I cling onto him. Did I hold on to him and realize that cross was for me? I've heard people talk to me this way. They said, I clung to his scars through that difficulty. If it wasn't for the gospel, I would not have made it through that trial. See, we need to learn to live at the foot of the cross. See, Paul believed that, that God answered prayers. He understood James' words that was written much earlier. James said, the prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. He believed that. Notice what he says to the Corinth church in chapter one of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter one. Turn with me there quickly. Look at verse five and then we'll drop down. There's, there's so much here, I, I don't want to get 
I'll get way off on a rabbit trail here, but look at verse 5. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. I love that phrase. In everything, trials, difficulties, he's teaching on unity, he's teaching on forgiveness, he's teaching on fellowship here to the church in Corinth. They're coming out of a difficult letter of rebuke and disciplining a man that's within them. They're coming through hard times here, and he says, look at that. In everything, you're enriched in him, in Jesus. Now look at verse 8 with me who will also confirm you to the end. Oh, oh my goodness. When life is done, by death or by rapture, Jesus is going to say, I confirm this one. (laughs) Isn't that going to be amazing? Father, my blood covered this child. Let him in for eternity. He's going to confirm you no matter what you've been through. Maybe you're a Christian in, in Syria right now. And, and if they find out you're a Christian, you are dead, period. Outside of the grace of God keeping you from dying. Places in the Philippines, places around the world right now, if you are caught as a Christian, you're a dead man. So it doesn't matter if you're living in America or you're living somewhere in a difficult place. When you get to heaven and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he himself will confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's staggering to me. I know, Scott. But Jesus said he's blameless. I washed every sin of his away on the cross. I washed his past sins. I washed his present sin. I washed his future sins. And he stands blameless before you. Come in, enter my joy. Well, that's the gospel, isn't it? Look at verse nine. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. There's that very strong, sovereign term, kaleod, called, picked out, chosen into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He brings you into that fellowship. Now look at verse 10. Here's what I'm after. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the gospel, that you all agree that there be no division among you. The gospel stops division. Do you get that? The gospel stops division. It really does. But that you may be complete in the same mind and in the same judgment, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Kaleo's people, that there are quarrels among you. And some are, some are saying that I'm of this and that. But see, he says, look, you can stop this. Now, look, one more passage. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's written this. This goes on to be a difficult letter because he has to deal with a lot of things. Now, in chapter 1 of, of 2 Corinthians, notice what he does. For just, verse 5 again, For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant in Christ. Now, he says, look, you've gone through these different things. Now you're going to have comfort. I love the way the two books are set. The second book shows you that your comfort. You've gone through these trials, even discipline. Now God is going to comfort you. Drop down with me to verse 11. And you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons, and look at this, on behalf of our favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So Paul says, look, we are going to find joy because we're going to be comforted from the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to join with us and we're going to feel your prayers 
and we're going to receive your prayers. It's an amazing thing that prayer does. Gospel-filled prayer will bring joy to you. Three, joy is joy in the protection of the Spirit. Back to first chapter of Philippians. He says at the end of verse 19, and the provision or the protection, we could say that with that word, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So I know I'll be delivered. I know it's going to come through the prayers of the saints. And I know it's going to come through the protection or provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, we learn from Paul here that he absolutely trusts in the Spirit of God. And you know why he does that? Because he believes the Spirit is God. He's not a lesser member of the Trinity. You know, God the Father, God the Son, and then you got the sidekick over here. No, no, he's fully God, God the Spirit, God in spirit, God who rests within us at salvation makes us his temple. Now notice how he handles this throughout scriptures. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10, he says this, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. Now he's talking about the deep things of scripture. He says God reveals them. So when Paul is going through this struggle here and he's realizing that the spirit of God is gonna be the protector and the provider for him, he believes that God himself is gonna lead him through the spirit. He puts great stock in the work of the spirit of God. Now we know this because the spirit never teaches anything other than the glory of Christ and God's will. That's what he does. The spirit of God is not, he's not running his own show. He's not going, well, I think I'm going to take him in this direction. He is always spotlighting Jesus Christ, always spotlighting the ministry of Christ in one's life. And so um, Paul probably read these words from Matthew 10. He believed that Jesus um, said these words. Matthew 10, 19 and 20, just jot some of these verses down. But when they hand you over, <laughs> this is Jesus speaking to the disciples long before they understood what this passage meant. When they hand you over, and they did, do not worry about how and what you are to say, for it will be given to you at that hour or what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father, heavenly father, who will speak for you. See, Paul believed, even though he was going through these difficult times, he believed that the spirit would speak through him. Can you imagine sitting before King Agrippa, who can say, off with his head, and he doesn't waver in chapter 28 of Acts. Doesn't waver. Who's doing the speaking? Spirit of God. So when you go through difficulties, you can say, God, I believe that your spirit's gonna help me through this. And in those difficult times, maybe you're dealing with doctors or maybe you're dealing with attorneys or something's going on that's difficult in your life. And you say, Lord, you gotta help me speak. Paul says, look, there is great joy when you trust that the Spirit will speak through you. Ron has done a great job with Romans 8, 26 to 27. If you've ever talked to him about this verse, 28 and 27, Ron has a very good perspective on this. The verse says this, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings and deep words. Wow. That's, I'll tell you, that's places where people have really suffered. I talked to a woman one time who had lost everything. Very, very difficult situation. And she told me, she said, Pastor, I don't even know what to pray, but I, I asked the Lord to get me from minute to minute right now. It was one of the most worst situations I'd ever found myself in the middle of. 
And I remember this godly lady, she said, I'm praying that God will speak for me and get me from one minute to the next minute. And I read this verse to her. He'll groan for you. The Spirit of God will groan for you when you don't know and you don't have the words to groan. And so there's great joy knowing that the Lord, the Spirit of God will protect you and he'll speak for you and and you don't have to get in front of God and make excuses. You can just say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I plead for your help. And the Spirit of God will take that and he'll take it right to the throne of God. Also remember that the Spirit's very involved in joy, isn't he? Love, joy, peace, patience. The fruit of the Spirit. See, one of the reasons you know that you're Spirit-filled and that the Spirit is, has freedom in your life is the idea of the understanding of that verse. He has freedom in your life is you have joy. Show me a joyless person, I'll show you someone who sequestered or quenched the Spirit of God. Because joyful people allow the Spirit of God to let them go. Let him have freedom. He loves love and he loves joy and he loves peace and he loves kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. He loves that stuff. That's what he loves and he'll find you joy in that. Fourth, joy in the hope of Christ. Look at verse 20 here. Wow, I've only got through one verse. Um, According to my earnest expectations and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You all heard of Charles Dickens. He wrote a monumental novel called Great Expectations. He wrote it in 1861. I think it should be called Great Disappointment. It's the most depressing book in the world. I don't know if you had to read it in high school. I did. Probably read the cliff notes, never made it all the way through it. But basically, it is about people who are very depressed with no hope. I mean, it's, it's, a, no, it's a monumental novel. All of our kids read it at schools, right? And it's, it's about depression and, and not expectations. Everything falls apart for Pip in it. And, and, and life's a mess. And why Dickens is writing the novel, he's in an immoral affair with another woman than his wife. Paul's in jail. He could die very easily. He could say, you're dead. We'll kill you tomorrow and it's all over. And he says, I have great expectations and hope. Boy, I want that. That's what I want. I want that kind of great expectation and hope. Not great misconceptions of life, but great hope. And Paul truly had great expectations. They could release me, they could kill me, but I'll be with the Lord. <laughs> I mean, it's so diverse, isn't it? I mean, we, we kind of laugh at it. We go, freedom, death. And, and Paul says, whatever, wh- whether in life or death, look at the end of verse 20, whether life or death, I'll be free. And, and look what he says, I will not be put to shame in anything. Why can he say that? Because there's people barking about him. There's people saying, oh, he's in prison. He wasn't very good. You should follow my ministry. There's others, there's others, Jews that are out there trying to destroy him. They want him dead, just like Christ died. They want him dead. He, he says, look, I won't be put to shame because his faith was in Jesus. He believed the gospel. And, and notice that he says in the verse, he says, look, but with all boldness, boldness, confidence, whether in life or death, I'm confident in Christ. 
You confident in this world system? You confident in the economy? What are you confident in? All of those things will fail you. But Christ won't, and that's why Paul says, I'm confident. Listen, the man doesn't have anything. When you're in prison, you don't have anything, right? Those in the police world here? I mean, I, I, I go in prison, I regularly go meet people in prison and talk with them. They don't have anything. That's the whole idea of being in prison. You lose all your rights. Most of them. And yet he says, look, I have great joy, I have boldness, and even now, Christ, right now, as always, is being exalted in my body, whether life or death. I find joy in that. Remember the verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We love the first part of this. We always hear this. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, speaking to God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. We've heard that verse. But the last part of the verse is incredible. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Don't miss that part of that verse. Yes, it's impossible to please God without faith. He grants you faith to believe. You can't come to God without faith. He's not pleased with anybody who doesn't come to him by faith. But the part of the verse that's amazing is the end. He says he's a rewarder of those who diligently, it's a strong word for seek there. Some of the translations say diligently, diligently pursue him. He's a rewarder of that person. So I I told somebody in staff or somebody the other day, I said, we're going to be in a long line behind those nursery workers. who are over there right now caring for your children with 10 of them in that room. And I couldn't do it. Or, or that, that person who serves the Lord with no credit. No one knows about it. God diligently rewards them. And Paul believed that. He believed that there was going to be a reward for him. And so you press on, brother. You press on, sister. Knowing that you have faith in Jesus Christ and you press on, he'll reward you for it. Last one, and we'll just start on this and get into this next time. Five, joy in the gift of death. He said, well, there's an encouraging comment, Scott. He says this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Literally, it says, to live Christ, to die, gain. That's the literal words in the Greek. To live Christ, to die, gain. That's what he says. Next week, I'm going to deal with the joy of living on in the flesh. He's going to talk about that in the coming verses. But I wanted to just close with the gift of death. It is an amazing gift that we don't really always focus on. I don't know how many times I've had some gal or somebody come up to me, maybe it's new to the church or through the years of ministry, say, you know, I like God, but I'm still upset with him about casting Adam and Eve out of the garden. Have you ever heard somebody talk this way? He was just unkind. I mean, things were tough and he throws them out of the garden. I said, oh, do you understand what he was keeping them from? Do you understand the gracelessness of God, what he was doing in that moment? There was still another tree in the garden. It's called the tree of life. And if dead, dying sinners got to that tree of life and lived on in this life and not being able to die in the decaying, sinful bodies that we have, it would be the most ungracious thing that God ever did. God has given the gift of death to saved people. We get to leave this life someday. You don't have to go on any longer. And so Paul, when he gets to the end of uh, chapter to, uh, chapter 4 of 1st of Timothy he says I have been poured out like a drink offering before God it's over I'm done 
I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. It's over. God's taken me home. And he rejoiced in that. And it's an amazing statement. And Paul knew that. Now think about this. He's thinking about the church of Philippi. We're going to see this next week. I'm wrestling with whether to stay with you or I'm wrestling with whether to go and be with the Lord. In the book of Corinthians, he tells us that God let him look into the third heaven. The first heaven is where our birds fly in the air. We Second heaven is the atmosphere and the, the space and where all our stars and planets. The third heaven is where God resides. And Paul says, God let him look into that. And then he says, you want me to stay here? We're going to look at that next week. But he says, look, to die is gain. So believers, if you die and I do your funeral, and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be happy about it. We're going to miss you, right? Because I'm going to look out there and you're not going to be there. We're going to miss you, but we're going to rejoice because to die is gain. To die is to shed this sinful mortality and put on immortality and be with the Lord forever and grow in knowledge of him for eternity. Be reunited with those who have gone before us. Paul said death is gain. Every time I study on death in the Bible, I want to die. <laughs> but I wrestle with the same thing because Lord, you may want me here. You know, this is, this is joy. And that's why Paul could get there and say, I don't have joy in my life. Will you accept death? <laughs> accept death. Say, Lord, if you want to kill me, it's okay. I receive that. If you want me to keep on living, I receive that as well. See how deep he goes with this? Not only with just imprisonment and people being mean to him, he goes all the way to life and death. That's how you have joy. Father, thank you for time in your word, Lord. These verses, we could just keep plumbing the depths of them. We feel as though we've only scratched the surface of them this morning. We become overwhelmed with the depth and beauty of Jesus Christ that drove a man, Paul, a man just like us, Lord. He was born and he died. But it drove him to have such joy when he lost everything for your sake. And Lord, I know there's not a man, woman, boy, and girl in here who knows Jesus as their Savior that doesn't want that, Lord. We want to live that way. We want to live full of joy accepting what you have given to us. And you, Lord, you choose. You choose what we get. You choose the trials. You choose the difficulties. You choose the good things, Lord. Because your choice is always better than ours. So Lord, we pray that you would help us accept that, Lord. Father, we admit change is hard on us here as humans. We don't handle change well. We don't like it. But Lord, you bring changes into our lives because you know it's best for us. You know what we need. And so Lord, may we love you in the same way Paul did, that we trust what you're doing. You are our heavenly Father, our perfect heavenly Father. We trust you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 